Hello, internet friends. Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I am your host, Michael Lomans, and today I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with Kim Bost. Kim is a designer and design leader with a very colorful track record at well-known companies like the New York Times, Etsy, Dropbox, and is now a part of the experience design team at Netflix. We covered a lot of topics, including burnout, management styles, values alignment with your team and your employer, our shared thoughts on research, as well as her deep interest in food and wine. Here is episode 20, Finding Our Way. Hey, Kim. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for having me. We're sitting at your dining table. (laughs) It's It's the only way. It's the only way. If you know me, it is only appropriate to be sitting at my table with some pastries. Now we have to get into it. What, What does that mean? I am just a very food-oriented person. Like, it's one of my passions in life. I'm a home cook. I go to the farmer's market every Sunday. I, like, plan out meals. I know all of the... I wouldn't say all of them, but I know a lot of the best restaurants in Brooklyn, let's say, in New York. That was, like, something I had on my dating profile and Hinge come to me (laughs) for the best restaurants and wine yeah, and I have. I also have, I didn't make these pastries, but I have a lot of baking education. They're from Poppies. Apparently, Poppies is good. Poppies is great. It's like the well, in this neck of the woods of Brooklyn and Carroll Gardens, it's the best bakery. If you don't get there right when they open, there's a queue that you have to wait in, and sometimes you see some celebs around. Ooh. We love that. Yeah. Also, you say queue and not line. Is I don't know. Yeah, queue. Yeah. I love these little intricacies in people's language. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something more maybe romantic about a cue than a line. Like it's a little less frustrating. It's a little more civilized, something like that. Yeah. I I love that. That's a great call. I I spent, what was it? Probably when I was 19, I I thought it was very important to say aluminum instead of aluminum. Oh, wow. And so I made sure to do that and I still do it. Was this a Johnny Ive thing or was this a... Yeah, it's probably like a white boy tech, like (laughs) Steve Jobs, Johnny Ive thing. I think I can only say aluminum. I don't think I can say it the other way. Well, whenever I say it now, people like pause and they're like, really? Aluminum? Here we are. (laughs) I mean, it starts to sound like, what is it? Alums? Like like onions. Yeah. Like that category of like onions and scallions. Oh, aliens. Yeah. Yeah. That thing. Yeah. Aliens. Yeah. 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 But I grew up in the South, in West Virginia, and it's just aluminum for us. Yeah. Let's talk about all the food things. We're going to talk about all the food things later. Yeah. First, we're going to do this thing now that I did with the Aaron episode. Okay. Where I'm going to riff off reverse cron your your resume. Yeah. Because... This feels like improv. I kind of want to fast track through it and then like we're going to like touch on some points. That's great. I like that. People can like talk through their career, but it's also good if you just... Here's the index. Yeah. Oh, I love an index in a book. Same. Love an index. I also think it's so... I mean, we're both Sagittarius. It's like so boring for me to rattle off all of the places that yeah. I've worked. Sagittarii. Sagittarii. The, the Sagittarians is, in a group. Oh, like it's like a murder of crows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A swarm of Sagittarii. Yeah. The centaur. Basically, Sagittarius is a fancy word for centaur. Yeah. Right. With a bow. And Yeah. Right. We get a bow. It's true. We are hunters. But do we gather? 
That's the question. Oh boy, now what is on my LinkedIn? Okay. Do you have gonna, my wine certification on my LinkedIn? I'm gonna cru- I'm out. gonna crush through it. Well, first of all, apparently you have a wine certification. That's I do, awesome. I do. I'm not joking. Like food and wine is my thing. Oh, it's on here. Yeah. yeah. It's one w- of my proudest. WSET moments. level one award in wine. Yeah. When did you get that? Was this a COVID thing or was this like an early in life? No, thing? this was I think it was like 2019, 2018, you know, feeling very burned out. At my job, I was at Dropbox at the time. Mm-hmm. I'd been there for about four years. And so many other people, you start, I think, finding other ways to energize yourself. So I did a ton of baking education, a ton of wine education. Nice. I had a summer where I was like prototyping a scarf empire where I was like dyeing scarves and silk screening scarves. I love that. That's <laughs> I amazing. Like, Maybe this is my thing. Yeah. So I have level one WSET, which can go up to like court of sommelier. Mm-hmm. Level one is like entry level. Any good bartender or service person is going to have a level one WSET. It just is. It's not like a Chardonnay is the only thing. <laughs> right. Um, well, do you want to talk about Chardonnay? <laughs> I have thoughts. Maybe later. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it just involved five to six weeks of going to a class in Midtown and a lot of flashcards. And I passed the exam. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a great start before we start riffing off the reverse cron. Okay. So reverse cron LinkedIn. Here oh we boy, go. Here we go. 2001, 2004, designer at Bolton Advertising and Promotions. Yes, correct. From there, you worked for Pentagram as a freelancer. That is true. Then you were an adjunct professor at MICA. Yes. I was not much older than my students. I taught graphic design and a college accredited class in zines, which Ooh, I think is zines. way more interesting. Nice. Than graphic design. Nice. That yeah. we're gonna we're gonna earmark that one. Then you were at the Times for about four years. Yep. Then you were at Etsy for almost three. Yep. Then you went to a place called Cover. It's a startup. Yeah. Cool. Was it startup called Cover? Nice. Yeah. Spent four years at Dropbox, a couple of months at, at Working Co., which is looks like early COVID days. Yeah, we should dig into that. And and you're almost in your three years, your two and a half, three years in at, at Netflix. Yeah. That is a track record. Thank you so much. That is, those are some names. Those are some roles you've been managing for fucking minute. Yeah, about a decade. Wow. We're going to like jump into some of this stuff. I'm so excited. What I love you... to talk about design. I don't love to talk about myself, but I love to talk about design. Well, we can use design as a yeah. medium to talk about yourself. Great. Let's you do know. it. It's very Sagittarius of you to not want to talk about yourself. Yeah. I want, I want, I'm talking through the work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking through the work, everybody. Awesome. So where do you want to, where do you want to start? Where should we start? Um, you know, I think you were talking, you were asking about Work & Co. Yeah. Or like COVID days. Yeah. I was only there for six-ish months. But I think that was an interesting moment in my career because I, you know, have spent over a decade in tech and it was right after feeling really burnt out at Dropbox and having yes. that moment of, I'm going to leave design altogether. I'm going to leave tech altogether. And I took a few months off and very quickly I realized, oh, I was just really burned out. Yeah. Like, I am super duper passionate about design. I've dedicated my whole life, my whole career to this. What happened? <laughs> like what went so wrong that I was about to give all of that up? And so... That is kind of what led me to Work & Co because I was thinking about starting my own agency or my own practice focused on in-house design, right? Mm-hmm. 
and bringing everything that I have learned working in-house and offering that as a service. And so Work & Co works with a lot of tech co- companies that, you know, like, like Google, like Apple, um, and they think of themselves as a product design company and they have super duper talented people. So I thought, well, I'm just going to swing to the other side. I'm going to go to a company that just focuses on design. Like mm-hmm. I'm just going to go super deep. I don't have to worry about all of this like strategy stuff. I don't yeah, have to worry yeah. about all this big org stuff. Like I can just, we can really just focus on, you know, moving design. As we go into H1, H2 planning. Right, right. Oh, start gosh, June. totally. Totally. Yeah. I'm working on H2 staffing okay. right now. But then I realized throughout that process, you know, again, like I can't emphasize enough how talented these people are, how good their work is. Mm-hmm. But for me as an individual, being in an agency environment, I could only utilize half of my skill set. Like I had built so much expertise working in-house in tech, specifically on the strategy side, in addition to the design side that I couldn't really bring all of those parts to this role. And so that's part of why I didn't stay there longer. Yeah. And I've had a couple of moments like this where... You know, I've worked at companies, not many, but a couple where I've worked someplace for six months and you realize it's not for you. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the hardest decisions to make to walk away from that or to like make that change because you Mm -hmm. feel like in some ways you feel like a failure. You feel like you're like disappointing yourself or disappointing, you know, the people that you signed up to work for or work with. I think it's better to just go ahead and make that call unless you see like a pattern of it, because I always learn something from those experiences about myself and the strengths that I bring to the table and what I need, I guess, out of my journey and out of my career. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Funny story. We both were burnt out at the same time, 2019. Oh, man. We should have hung out and got some Chablis. Some Chablis, nice. Which is Chardonnay. We're going to uh, leave the wine in here. It's been fermented in stainless steel. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you decided to work through the problem by going to Work & Co. And yeah. I decided to not want to work remotely at the mm. start of COVID and had the luxury of not having to. And yeah, totally. Managed a remodel instead, which was... That makes sense. Not a great way to get out of burnout, by the way. <laughs> 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 well, you're using all of your project management skills. And, it was, yeah, yeah, there was like a lot of, I needed to keep myself busy and I wasn't really good at letting myself not work for a while. And so there were yeah. so many other things going on. What did we rebottle? Are we talking a kitchen, a whole home? Downstairs floor. Mm, nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. As Learn- a designer in a remodel, I'm always thinking about materials, right? Yeah, like actually... To me, it was like almost like a design systems practical approach to it. So first off, when we broke ground, I was still in New York. The house is in San Francisco and it was COVID. So we I couldn't go and fly out easily to go check it out. So I grabbed all of the files that I got from the architect. What is it like as built drawings? Basically, like someone comes and surveys your house, makes a drawing of the house and I spliced those together and made a 3D model in SketchUp and then basically started taking renders to tell the contractor what to do where. Wow. Because I couldn't Wow. I couldn't be there physically. Did they appreciate that or were they They loved it. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. the you can always pick right. It's like cheap, good or fast. Right. And Here we go. And I got, you know, affordable and good. Right. Not that fast. Right. 
However, the contractor that I worked with, it's him and then it's his wife. She does all the admin work and manages the whole company. And he's basically the expert that goes on site and does all this kind of stuff. So as soon as I learned that I should communicate through her yeah. and send very detailed notes, literally she would just print it out, give it to him. He would bring it on site. As soon as I got that understanding, I realized how to communicate with them. And then as I moved back to San Francisco three months later, and I saw it happen in real life much more. I, this was a very much a design, an org problem. But totally. That that worked out really well. But yeah, um, burnout, not fun. N- no, not fun. I feel like it's more in the lexicon now, right? Like we talk about it a lot. But when I was going through it in 2019, it was really hard to recognize what was happening. Also, like I had all the classic symptoms. I got like really sick was so stressed or burnt out that I actually, I mean, I think this is why I developed like Bell's palsy, which is like a temporary facial paralysis, like seriously sick. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I thought I was at like more of a transition moment than, you know, a burnout moment. And it's also for me, I think when I look back on it, I want to, I don't know, it's my instinct to say there was a specific trigger or a specific scenario that was happening. But I was working with great people at a great company. I think so much of it is very personal, very individual, like learning how you deal with stress, how you deal with disappointment, how you deal also with mid-career. I think like this tends to happen to a lot of folks who are have mid-career, they've accomplished a lot of things and they're like, okay, what's next? Where is this going? Like, what is this turning into? So learning how to navigate some of those like very deep questions for myself has allowed me to, you know, re-enter tech, to re-enter design leadership um, in a way where I feel a lot stronger. I feel, I actually feel like super strong. I feel really energized now. And it's the opposite of the feelings that I was having, you know, in 2019. What changed? A lot of things changed. I got a divorce. I think part of the burnout and part of that moment in my career growth is a little bit about resources, right? And so it could be about a marriage. It could be about like things you're going through in your family. It could be about having kids, but having the energy and the resources to put into yourself and your career is important. It's meaningful. And so like now I have some of those resources back. Like I Mm -hmm. have that mental capacity and that energy back. Another thing that has made a huge difference is I have a coach. I have a leadership coach. They're great. I work with a wonderful woman, Margaret Lee. I'm sure you've heard of her. I work with her through the design department. She's led, you know, large design organizations at Google. And before engaging her, I just had this realization I have, you know, support in every other area of my life. Like if I'm, you know, trying to work out, I might get a trainer. I have a therapist that I see every other week. I didn't have anyone who was helping me on this career journey. I had not had a mentor since I was at the New York Times in, you know, 2007. So realizing that I needed that support and seeking out that support has made a huge difference. It's helped me workshop things that I'm going through in real time and also has helped me, I think, develop my leadership style or just even own my leadership style. Like what is authentic about me and what I bring to the table? And then the other thing is the Netflix culture itself. I really thrive in that environment. 
there's a lot of autonomy, a lot of freedom to make decisions. You're very much accountable for the decisions that you make. But compared to some of the other design leadership teams that I've been on, that can be very consensus driven, which is like fucking impossible when you're managing teams of hundreds of designers Mm -hmm. and you have like dozens of managers trying to get together to figure out what to do. I think consensus is actually like really damaging in that moment because there's such a spectrum of needs across the team and like very different scenarios. And it's not that we don't solve things as a team, but you're able to make a lot of decisions independently. And so what I love to do with my teams is I love to like prototype things, like prototype new ways of working, prototype new like staffing models and processes and try it out like locally within the like context that we kind of control. And I've seen a lot of success that way in terms of how we operate. It's also really energizing for me. It allows me to be creative in leadership and management in a way that I haven't been able to be creative on other teams. Nice. I really love that we opened. We have three doors. I'm going to walk in the one and very quickly look around the room and close it back up. One, great callback to the design department. Oh, God. Two episodes ago. Yeah. Mia. I know, three episodes ago. Yeah. Mia is awesome. And I love that that organization exists and it's here to help us out in design leadership. All right. Door closed. Two things that you just brought up lightly and kind of intertwined, which is your leadership style Mm. and your leadership values and then the Netflix culture. Yeah. And I kind of want to, in isolation, go through them. So who are you, Kim, as a design leader? Oh, that's a really intimidating question. And the first thing I'll say is that it evolves, right? So who I am as a design leader at this moment is different than who I was as a design leader a few years ago, and it's different from who I'm going to be as a design leader next year. I'm Um, kind of excited to hear how the last decade was then. Ooh, well, and also, you know, I've been in and out of management roles. I've very intentionally stepped into, yes. There's a high five moment for manager IC hybrids. I, I, like, we should get into this. I love to talk about this. Um, I've been in and out of management roles, very intentionally, like, stepped into, like, staff or principal roles at moments in my career, depending on what I needed individually, how I could have best contributed to the organization. And long story short, I think that is what makes me a really great design leader and a really, like, effective design leader. Because when I'm in an IC role, I've had the people training to understand how to navigate really ambiguous problems or navigate really challenging people scenarios. And when I'm in a management role, you know, I've been in the IC seat recently. So I kind of understand or more maybe connected with some of those motivators and some of those challenges. And that definitely influences my leadership style now. And so, you know, Margaret has pushed me on this. What are your values? Articulate your values for the team. And so the contract that I have with my team at this very moment is based on three altitudes. Them as an individual, us as a design function and team, and the value that we're bringing for the business. And so as an individual, my contract with them is I want them to feel like they can do some of the best work of their career at Netflix. I want them to be able to look back five years from now, maybe they're at another job, they look back, 
maybe they're sitting here on your podcast and they're like, yeah, I did some of my best work on Netflix. I had a great time. So that's them as an individual. For us as a team and as a function, what I really care about is our relationships, our relationships with each other as designers, our relationships with our cross-functional partners, and that those are some of the best and most healthy relationships that you have at work. Because if we don't have the relationships or strong relationships as designers or strong relationships with our cross-functional partners, then we're not going to be able to do some of the best work of our career. And then finally, I think if both of those things are true, we will be able to deliver really great outcomes for the business. We'll be able to deliver great design solutions and also, you know, obviously like business impact. So that's my approach. And I'm also very passionate about it, which feels like really good. It's like not bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, I really love that. I love also like the concept of these altitudes. So how does that click into the Netflix culture? I think really well. I mean, some things that come to mind, again, the sort of like independent decision making, the autonomy, right? And also this is the benefit of me being an IC. I came into Netflix as an IC and then stepped into a leadership and a management role. And what I experienced as an IC is for the first time in many years, being able to make a lot of my own decisions, right? Like I was not being told necessarily how I needed to spend my time, how I needed to prioritize my time. Obviously, you're assigned to a business unit and you have specific goals. But with within that, you know, you can prioritize um yeah, what your focus is and what you're dialing in more or doing less of. And that's what I work with my team on a lot. Thinking about our work as a portfolio. As an individual, if we have a dozen design projects, not all of them are of equal weight. So what is a framework for us to identify? Like, here's the really like high opportunity, high impact stuff versus like the stuff that we should maybe just consult on. I should also clarify that I work on the studio side of the business Mm -hmm. and like the consumer side, the part that's responsible for the streaming experience, you know, some of this approach might not work there, right? Because obviously that is like a very high volume, like high optimization area where on the studio side, we're doing a lot of proprietary technology, zero to one type stuff for making content and managing content. Nice. Yeah. I feel like I didn't answer your whole question, though. Like, I went down this whole, like, you were like, how does this fit? Do you have a thought that you want to attach to it? Um, You were like, how does this philosophy fit within the Netflix culture? The other thing that I'll add, I just think about the VP of design, Steve Johnson. He said this quote the other day that really resonated with me. He's, you know, everybody at this business, we're all business people, but we are business people who think through design. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, something that I think a lot about with the team and also thinking about these skills that are unique to design. Like what are we uniquely qualified and skilled at doing and how do we use that to drive innovation? How do we use that to create business impact? I think a lot of times we find ourselves like gap filling, like taking on product jobs or whatever. And, you know, really 
the most value that we bring to the business and the type of work that's most rewarding, I think is really in that design realm. And so as much as possible, trying to push us to use design as a medium and a channel to do all of that other stuff. I really love that we have this through line now of the Mia episode, DDA, Aaron, now you were all talking about at a certain point in a individual's journey in tech, you end up being a business leader through the lens of whatever your discipline is. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that our industry hasn't completely gotten around to that yet, Mm -hmm. but we were already seeing that in some of these larger companies. Yeah. In 2015 or 2016, I know at Facebook, we were identifying that piece specifically. Mm -hmm. And I'm fairly sure that if you then look at the diaspora of leaders that came out of Facebook that then went to the Dropboxes, the Pinterest, the Uber and Netflix as well, that has slowly reverberated. But it's not like someone like that lands at the next company and then can say, hey, so that culture that we did over there, we're going to carbon copy that right now. Because it's not, that's not how culture works. No, I was just talking about this the other day. Yeah. And I feel like these reverberations, when the signals come from multiple angles mm-hmm. or from enough angles, you hit critical mass. And when you hit critical mass, you hit a tipping point. And I feel like we're at this tipping point of a lot of us not just having identified that we are business individuals speaking through design, mm-hmm. that we are leaders within the company agnostic of what our role is, but in our case, speaking through design. And together with our partners, we are going to bring the business forward. Right. What I'm even starting to shape more as a opinion is that I don't think that our product partner discipline and our eng partner discipline has that point yet that they've achieved. I think that the product realm still has a couple of archetypes, including the facilitator, the mini CEO, all these kinds of things. And I think that the engineering manager realm very much still has a understanding of, I have engineering capacity. I need to find a way to put that on the roadmap to like intersect that with the roadmap in a way that is best for my people. Mm -hmm. And then my second rule is also, I need to make sure that based on the level that my engineers have, I need to match up the type of work with oftentimes first the level of work that they're supposed to have, you know, staff, senior staff, senior, and then second, align it with their interests. Yeah. On design, I think because two directions, and again, this is a pretty young thought because, you know, you were all here with me when I went through these episodes. On design, we have one angle coming in that is because we never thought this was going to be a job. We were supposed to be the artsy people. Yeah. We likely have a different way of looking at this. We didn't come from the business angle first and therefore started getting a rigid mindset. Our rigidity in the mindset is actually, are we going into this business angle? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And from the engineering perspective, I think engineering out of the trio has been the longest around in different instances, actually doing literal and silicone. And critical. Like if you, yes. without engineering, these products don't exist. Exactly. But but it came from like even the physical realm, like doing the silicone and doing all the hardware mm-hmm. and software and making it work together. And still that obviously happens in a large part of 
the technology industry. And I think anyone who has worked even remotely on hardware knows that hardware is very hard. But the software realm has ballooned and engineering specifically has taken things from that hardware realm, slowly has gotten looser and looser over time mm -hmm. as you get more checks and balances with continuous integration and like open code bases and all this kind of stuff. But potentially hasn't gotten to the point yet where engineering leaders generally think of themselves as working for the business through the lens of engineering. Yeah, I love that thread. I love that idea. I agree with you. Like a lot of the, I work with really great engineering leaders at Netflix and they are business oriented, right? Like they absolutely understand the, our objectives, what we're going after, absolutely contribute to strategy. Like I would say like cross-functionally, all of us are held accountable for contributing to strategy. They want those voices in the room. It's part of the expectation of the role. But what we're talking about here, I think, is a fundamental kind of like different way of working or a different lens that we might apply to product development. And I think that engineering piece is really interesting. So if what we're talking about is using design and the unique qualities that design brings to drive innovation and create new and interesting and valuable pieces of technology, what that looks like practically is leaning into what we're really good at, like making design artifacts, design explorations to facilitate dialogue, right? To talk about the what ifs, to talk about, should we do this? Should we do that? And I think it looks like a lot of like sometimes what might be seen as throwaway work, but it's not. It's meant to, again, facilitate this dialogue. And so if you bring your engineering discipline into that, that's where I think it gets really interesting. And you get closer to like maybe like a, a startup scenario, right? But like where you're actually not just designing things, but building a lot of things that might be seen as throwaway in pursuit of something really great. And so, and I think that's also where we do feel a lot of drag, especially at these larger organizations, more mature organizations, that comfort level with building things that are temporary, that, you know, we're going to need to evolve and change rapidly. The threshold, the tolerance for that is unfortunately much lower. Yeah. Actually, as you were talking, I was like, I don't think that we get to do as much throwaway work at all anymore. Yeah. Especially if you are in service design, then mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're going to do throwaway work until we like find what we're going to pitch. Right. Right. And But if you are in-house, then it's like you are also on this roadmap. Your time is allocated on this roadmap. Mm -hmm. And these are your tasks and projects that are attached to you. More often than not, you, you know, get allocated 32 design weeks on a 26 week roadmap mm -hmm. minus your like vacations that you're hopefully taking. It's a 23 week roadmap, <laughs> right? Then design is pressured end to end and creativity dies on the vine because totally we we are executors basically. But engineering has that same problem. Engineering needs to show impact by landing code in the main product somewhere. Yeah, there are always very important things that are, you know, both urgent and important all the time everywhere because the impact needs to be had and engineering taking the time to prototype to throw something away is I rarely see that nowadays. And I think there are some cultures that still have it. You know, I haven't been at Etsy for a decade, but we definitely had it at Etsy back in the day. And to your point, 
you know, you can't come into a company and create values. And so those values were deeply embedded back in the day when I was at Etsy. Anyone could ship an experiment to 1%. And the engineers that I worked with, one of them literally said to me, like, code isn't precious. I'm happy to throw away code. I think that's even where the seed of this idea started. During the pandemic, before I went to Netflix, I was also interviewing with Slack and I was interviewing with an engineer and they challenged me on something that I wrote in a blog post about technical prototypes being expensive. And that was that blog post was very reflective of my time at Dropbox. And so that was a hint to me that at Slack that they have they might have some of that mentality that like prototype quick to iterate and learn to have it not be precious. Yeah. And I think, you know, I just, I feel like maybe we've lost our way a little bit. Like we all know that this is, and we have all probably experienced that this is the better way of working. A symptom that I see of that in design is this emphasis of doing a ton of research up front before we are willing to commit to a design solution or commit to like building a thing. I think that we have this desire to want to get it right on the first swing and also to fully evaluate or validate something versus leaning on our gut, leaning on our intuition and trying and learning and leaning into the process. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's like we've gotten stuck here a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's an area that I think about a lot and how I want to evolve our practice as product designers. I talk to my team a lot and have made them very uncomfortable about asking them to lean on their gut. Like I have said to them, and people might come after me for this, but there are scenarios like where you can do less research. If it Mm -hmm. is a low risk scenario, you should absolutely just be leaning on your design gut and learning along the way versus trying to like get it perfect in the first pass. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with that. I think the other part of research that I feel is often misunderstood in a way is that we have to go and talk to these people to hear what they think they want. Right. Instead of, well, research is also market research. Research is also looking at quantitative data and trying to derive hypotheses out of this. Yeah. It is the combination of signals that gives you a level of confidence to do certain amounts of work. It is not just talking to N equals 20 individuals. Right. And, you know, when did we as designers stop using our judgment? That's what makes us (laughs) really great. I think that, you know, research can become a crutch in a way, right? Like can become a safety net for, you know, not taking the risk of making a decision and having that decision be right or wrong. But that's that's the whole practice that is like the practice of design, I think, is to have an opinion. And also, you know, when we get into this territory or this way of thinking of being right or wrong versus learning, that is when things are generally like counterproductive and not just not very interesting. We're not building interesting stuff Mm -hmm. when we're working in that way. Yeah. I think that we don't want to argue with our discipline counterparts. Totally. Yeah, that's right. Or we have a fear that the design voice isn't heard. Mm -hmm. And the misconstruction in that logic for me is that if you as a designer come to a debate with your partners and you come with words only, you're not leaning on your strength. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you come with words and pictures or with pictures and words, 
all of a sudden you lean on your strength and you can change minds, you can bring people along, you can talk them through it. It's the difference where I often see, you know, at Brexit's like PRDs before it's been multi-page, just memos, whatever the artifact is in words that needs to explain the whole concept, in my opinion, is always completely dependent on the perspective and context of the reader. The magic of words is that you can come up with the world around it. If you right. read this amazing novel, everyone's realm looks different. And then once you see the movie, you're like, well, not as good as the book. And some people are like, oh, no, I really like that. And it all depends on like how crazy your imagination extrapolated what those words on the page were. Mm -hmm. When it comes to entertainment and it comes to you enjoying that, really important, super cool. When it comes to getting alignment within the business, polar opposite. Right. So if you're going to try to argue in words with a product manager or in words with an engineer and the engineer comes at you and brings the code, then that code wins the argument. And if you are a designer and you bring images or flows or whatever you have to express your thoughts, I think you have a much better chance of making your case or a much better chance of leading your counterparts through that discussion. Yeah. And maybe even in that realizing that what you derived as your opinion from this case that you were making was not the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then you can take a sidestep, you can take this adjacent realm, or you can decide to completely abandon it. Right. Totally agree. I think that's exactly what I imagine when I talk about, you know, leveraging our unique skills to facilitate dialogue and discussion and direction. And as you were describing that, I had two realizations. So the first one is, I think I've gone full circle in my career on this. Like I definitely went through a phase about a decade ago, time I was working at Etsy and in startups where I was really anchored to the strategy piece, to the words piece, to the meaning piece. And I'm at the point now, which is not squarely in the wheelhouse of design, right? It's, you could say collectively owned. And I'm at the point now where I'm like fully bought in and all about leveraging that design muscle to get at the strategy piece, right? It's like, it's okay if we don't actually know why, but what's important is that we answer that question, right? That we have a process that can help us explore and learn. The second realization I had when you were describing that is, again, how great would it be if engineering showed up in the same way? Right. Or if we partnered, right, like if design is bringing these ideas to the table, but it's not just our prototypes, right? Like we actually have functioning prototypes, like real things to explore and then maybe throw away. Right. Mm -hmm. But those are the most meaningful conversations that any sort of product business can have. We can learn the most from that type of thinking. I think that we just covered a lot of really insightful territory mm -hmm. and I was getting real nerdy. About, real, real good. About design, which is great. Like I've been leading into my passion. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> you know. And also, yeah, you've seen a lot of stuff. Like you mm -hmm. should be leaning into your passion. The thing that is interesting to me and I'm very happy about is that we cut away very quickly from your career, which is definitely something that I'm going to keep on replicating. Okay, Because cool. I've been saying that this is season two of the podcast already. So every season is 16 episodes. This is the second set of 16 episodes. Oh my gosh. And the format should evolve. Yeah. So it's not like a let's evolve every episode, but let's kind of like figure out what we are every season. Mm -hmm. What I do want to get back to in regards to your career for a second is you already indicated that 
there's been various versions of you mm-hmm. in leadership. Mm-hmm. There's been various versions of you in design. There's been various versions of you in your life. Mm-hmm. My expectation is that those versions appreciate different things, remember different good parts and bad parts. And I love to hear some of your highlights of your career so far in the context that they were sitting in and how you reflect on them now. That's a great question. I mean, when I think about highlights and like going back to how I think about my team and doing some of the best work of their career, when I ask that question of myself, what immediately comes to mind are like four moments in my career. New York Times, Etsy, this Instagram platform that I co-founded during the pandemic called Kitchen Rodeo. Which we Whoa, haven't we about. haven't even talked about this. Right. Wow. Um, and the work that I'm doing at Netflix. Okay. And the reason these stand out to me, the New York Times was so thrilling because I was working in news, right? And it's just adrenaline yeah. provoking all the time. Like it's constantly changing. I worked through... The, the financial ch- crisis, Obama administration. Right, exactly, exactly. Like, and we have a very different relationship to the news now than we did in 2008. But I think that was some of the best work I've done in my career. And also it was where I was able to be in a way like my weirdest because I was I started off as an art director. I was working on a lot of editorial packages. It's like very different from the work that I do today. And it was so rewarding as a designer. Etsy stands out to me because that's where I started to hone my business and strategy acumen. And also it was just really fucking fun. It's, you know, a booming tech company and Dumbo back in the day Mm -hmm. that has roots and community and commerce. And so the like values were just like so good there. And also the way that engineering and design work together and we all wrote our own front end code and nice. like I would push and deploy code <laughs> to the site. Like it was just a really interesting moment where the culture was so good, like mm-hmm. so very good. And I think about that team a lot in terms of, you know, if I were running my own organization, what I would want to replicate. Kitchen Rodeo, which is like just a side hustle, is maybe like my most successful startup ever. Some friends and I at the beginning of the pandemic, essentially created a platform to host online cooking classes. I did all the branding for it. And we started off with just home cooks like our friends and people would donate money to attend and we would send that money to generally like food-based charities in New York. And then eventually we got professional chefs to start hosting cooking classes. So at our peak, like folks like Daniel Balud like hosted a cooking class on the platform. Yeah. We raised over a quarter of a million dollars for charities. And I say it's my most successful startup ever because compared to other startups that I've worked at, it just, it grew and scaled in this way very quickly where maybe we could have turned it into something, but it just, it was never meant to be that. It was just meant to be this moment of connection when we couldn't connect with each other in this okay. moment of support. When and we it was were so slapping hard. the pans together at 7 p.m. I was definitely a pan slapper. Yeah. Same. I hung out of the window at 7 p.m. with my copper pan mm-hmm. and my like wooden spoon. I did that for a long time. I feel like it, maybe the turning point was after 
Biden got elected. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's when we stopped because there was hope around the corner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it but, kept going for a while. Yeah, and um, and you know, we were slapping our pans in between mm-hmm. feeding our starters and right, you know, cooking yeah. a lot at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would hang out on my window and do it every night. And also would probably cry a little every night when mm-hmm. I did it because it was just like this very moving New York moment. Yeah. So so Kitchen Rodeo. It was also wild because, you know, VCs reached out to us. They wanted to like talk to us to fund us. And we knew that there actually wasn't a business model here. Like it wasn't something that was going to scale. So it was also my first kind of interaction in that type of conversation mm-hmm. where people really wanted to support us. But it's, no, that's, this isn't the thing. Come back to me in a couple of years, maybe yeah. or something else. And then, yeah, like finally, like Netflix, like Netflix to me has the same ingredients that Etsy and the Times did. And so part of that is about personal fulfillment. And part of that is about culture. So mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about why the culture is right for me, why it's great. And I think on the personal fulfillment side, it's like, I I love what we do. I love particularly the storytelling piece, you know, that we are hiring or working with supporting producing storytellers and local production crews all around the world to tell their story in a very authentic way. And that is the thing that I think is really exciting and making that accessible at the scale that we can make that accessible, I think, you know, just makes us better. So those are the highlights for me. Nice. So looking at some of the various eras you have had in your career, we've gone from journalism to startup to larger tech company to post IPO to then doing another startup to now being a leader at a very large tech company that seems to be very values aligned with you. What's been kind of a thought that's been nagging at you for a while? Is it designing in a remote culture? Hmm. Is it the research bit that you just mentioned earlier and, and trusting our gut a little more? What's something, what's an unresolved thought in your mind still? It's a very personal one, but I think it applies to our practice as designers and maybe it will resonate with other designers, but I feel unresolved, I think, in my multiple selves, right? Like I was talking about the sort of creativity and maybe the pure design expression that I was able to get at the times doing like editorial design, art direction, I pursued that moment again when I went to work and co, right? Because mm-hmm. it is a very pure practice of design there. And I really want to find a way to bring that together with some of the product work that I have been doing over the past decade at some of these larger organizations. I think that is where design can thrive. I think that's where people can be the happiest. I don't think a lot of us got into design for the optimization parts of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think people are most rewarded mostly by the creative expression of it. At least I am. And yeah, I want to find ways to like bring that together more. And I honestly think that is where we create the most interesting products, the most interesting experiences. Like at the end of the day, design should be moving, right? Like it should be a really unique and special moment. And that in and of itself is valuable, 
but we just have a hard time articulating it. We have a hard time fighting to make it happen in this like realm of just business optimization, business scrutiny. And that's very unique to what we do, right? Like I also think about design as a broad practice, right? Like this is very unique to product design, but within the realm of product design, it's unresolved for me. And I feel like I'm constantly in the pursuit of it. I think that's a great thought to end on and make people think about as well. Sorry for opening a background tab in everyone's brains now. <laughs> How do we solve this? Thank you for hosting me and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. This has been awesome. Thanks for listening. I want to thank him again for hosting me on a lovely morning in Brooklyn. It was a ton of fun recording. As you may have noticed, there were a lot of references to some of the recent other episodes. So if you want to go deeper, that's the direction I'll point you in. And if you want to stay in the loop on more episodes, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. I hope you have a great week and see you next Tuesday.